0: Well, this morning uh, we are doing things a little bit uh, differently because instead of our regular pattern of expository preaching, so in you know, a week in and week out we're working through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, we do that on purpose because we need the whole counsel of God in order to be faithful Christian believers. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. We say that, so we're work through the Scripture systematically. Um, however, every once in a while it 's time it 's nice to take a little uh, break from that and preach topically it 's never going to be a regular pattern for us uh, at least as long as i 'm standing up here regularly uh, but but uh, it will be uh, it is a nice it is a nice thing to do from time to time and with specific purpose so today we 're going to have a topical study and and next week we are as well because i can 't seem to do anything I try to do in one sermon so it 'll be this week and next week um, but we 're going to do this for two reasons: reason number one. It is uh, our 10-year anniversary, as we've been saying, so it's a good occasion for some specific reflection. It's just a nice time to reflect in a different way. Anniversaries always present that, that uh, advantage, a time just to think about uh, history and what's coming ahead and what it means to be faithful. Uh, so it, it gives us an occasion to do that in a topical way. Um, and secondly, there's always great benefit in being reminded. So I actually always attributed this quote to C.S. Lewis where he says we need to be reminded more often than we need to be instructed. I actually just, just discovered in reading recently that C.S. Lewis pilfered that quote from a uh, person by the name of Samuel Johnson who was a scholar in the 18th century who was actually responsible for much of what we have in our English dictionary. He put the dictionary together, um, but his, his, uh, his motto was we need to be reminded more often than we need to be instructed. And there's a lot of wisdom in that as we think about what it means to teach and be taught. And that is uh, something that carries over very much into our Christian lives. Uh, Because we have Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter, really speaking the same way when he writes his second letter. And he writes to these Christian believers and just listen to how he says things. He says, I will always remind you about these things, i.e. these big gospel truths. I will always remind you about these things even though you know them and are established in the truth you now have. So even though you know this stuff, even though you've been established in the gospel, Peter says, as long as I'm ministering to you, I'm always going to be reminding you about the big central truths of the gospel because we need to be reminded at least as often, if not more often than we need to be instructed. And so as we come to this particular occasion... It is a good occasion for us to remind ourselves of the purpose for which we exist as a local church. So here we are on our 10-year anniversary. We can ask this question, why do we exist as a local congregation of worshipers of Jesus? And again, as we work through the things that, that, that we'll talk about this week and next, this is going to probably be nothing new for any of us, but it is just good to remind ourselves of these things. We need the reminders um, and so and so there can be an advantage for us here so what we're going to do is' we're, is we're going to think through our purpose why, why do we exist as a local church um, as, as disciples of Jesus gathered together in this kind of committed ongoing persevering relationship um, there is an article published in in a psychological journal journal that I ran into in the course of some of my other studies uh, not too long ago and and it was interesting just listen to the way they put things talking about purpose just in, in humanity's need for purpose in general. This, this is what they said. Having a purpose in life is one of the most fundamental human needs. However, for most people, finding their purpose in life is not obvious. Modern life has a way of distracting people from their true goals, and many people find it hard to define their purpose in life. Especially at younger ages, people are searching for meaning in life, but this has been found to be unrelated to actually finding meaning. You hear that? People are searching, but it's actually found, research proven, to be unrelated to actually finding it. Right? Oftentimes, they go on to say, instead, people experience pressure to have a perfect life and show the world how well they're doing. That's what comes in and starts overtaking us, which, which of course, does not end in happiness. We know that. Trying to live the way that everyone around us thinks that we should live is often a fast track to discouragement. Uh, And so with that in mind, we need to have a proper view of our purpose, not just as humans, but especially as Christian believers, as those who have been made and then remade in the image of Christ. Purpose is critical. And of course, the wonderful thing about the gospel is it infuses the totality of our life with this unique purpose. Whatever our vocation might end up being, whatever our family dynamics might end up being, wherever we may live, whatever we may find ourselves doing... The gospel gives us purpose that not only transcends the immediacy of the things that we may be engaged in, but it also transforms what we're engaged in, bringing all of of these things under the purpose and glory of Jesus Christ. So whether we work, we work under the Lord, whether we eat, like Paul says, we eat and drink to the glory of God, all of these things we do with purpose as Christian believers. And so we want to think about that. Why, Why do we exist? And this is a question to be answered as Christian believers, both individually and corporately. Uh, we, we don't ultimately want to draw too, too hard of a line of separation between our individual and corporate lives as followers of Jesus. Uh, but we do recognize that the distinction there, and it's significant. And Paul recognizes this when he's writing to the church of Corinth. And he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he, he describes the church as the body of Christ, so we know that metaphor, the, the, whole, the wholeness that's represented there. We are all part of the body of Christ, and then Paul says, and individual members of it. So, so both of those parts are true. Corporately, we reflect the gathered people of God in a local church, and we're individually members of that. Our, our unique gifts and abilities and personalities and resources, all of these things are what make up the corporate whole. So so what is our purpose as a local church, as as a gathered congregation, and as individual members of it is the question that we need to be able to ask and answer well. As people who have received the glorious reconciling work of Jesus Christ, offered from God who made us, why do we exist? And of course we can can, uh, only talk about that. We really can only talk about what we do. If we have that set in a right context. So before we get into the specifics of our purpose, what I want to do is take just a minute and remind us, I know this will be a reminder, but we need to remind ourselves of the gospel order of things because we're going to talk about doing stuff when we talk about our purpose. We're going to talk about actively being engaged in things. But anytime we're talking about actively being engaged in things as followers of Jesus, we need to make sure that we have the order of that right in our mind because it can very quickly slip into a flipped order that can actually be quite, uh, quite troubling to us. And so, and so we'll just say from the beginning, the order is this. Why do, why do we do stuff in the Christian life? Well, we, we do. We, we engage in faithful Christian living full of purpose, not first and foremost because we hope to get something, although that's there as well, But we engage fundamentally, foundationally in the things we do because we already have something. And that is very basic and foundational to how we understand the truth of the gospel. We don't seek to live a life for the glory of God, for example, which is what we're going to talk about today. We don't seek to live a life for the glory of God, hoping that if we do well enough of that, we will gain His favor. Instead, we seek to live a life to the glory of God because in His free grace, in His the extension of His unmerited kindness, we have already been brought into an eternally favorable position with Him. Right? So we don't seek to do in hoping to get, but we live our lives in this way because of what we've already received. And, and we have to see that this is the way God always works. And, and again, I know this is review for us, I'm sure, but 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 but... We can never lose sight of this, so we always need to be talking about this. We, we must understand how our activity is framed as Christian worshipers based on who God is. So think about this with me for just a moment. All the way back in the beginning, when God made everything, He made humanity. And what are we told in Genesis 2, verse 7? We're told that the Lord God made Adam from the dust of the ground. Okay? Just in case we ever needed to be humble right? The Lord God made Adam, He made the man from the dust of the ground. And what did God give to the man of dust? Well, Genesis 2 verse 8, the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east and there He placed the man He had formed. And that garden was a paradise garden. What was pleasing to see and eat was all around. The communion with God was free, right? And we have to understand the critical truth that this is communicating from the very beginning of God's created order in terms of how He deals with humanity. Imagine if He had made Adam from the dust, and He said, Adam, I'm going to place you 500 miles outside the radius of paradise, outside the radius of Eden, and I'm going to have you work and keep that for, say, 120 years. And if you do that really well, Adam, what I'd like to do is, is then move you in, maybe within 130 miles from Eden. And if you can work that really well and keep that really well for five to six hundred years, then what I'm going to do is give you another promotion and you can actually start working and keeping the outskirts of Eden. And if you do really well with that, maybe for a thousand or two years, then what I'll do is I'll give you the keys to Eden itself and you can can go in and live in this paradise that I've given you and work it and keep it. That's not how God works, is it? God takes the man from the dust. What do you bring to the table when you're made of dust? Nothing. He takes the man from the dust, and what does he do? He sets him down in the center of paradise, and what does he tell him to do? Work it and keep it. You see the gospel order of things. God takes us when we have nothing to bring, sets us down in this glorious position of extraordinary grace, and then calls us to obey him, responding to the grace that he's extended, not to earn the grace he would extend. You see, And this is just all through the Scriptures. We see this in so many places. One of the most pronounced places we see this is in the Exodus. So Israel there is under bondage in Egypt. They're, they're, they're under bondage in slavery. It's horrific conditions. They cry out to God to save them, and he ultimately he, he redeems them. And then we think about the Ten Commandments that God gives to them. Imagine if the Ten Commandments began this way. Say they came before the Lord delivered them, and He said to them, Okay, Israel, I hear your complaints. I, hear the, I see the struggle is real. You're under extraordinary bondage. Um, so here's, here's the deal. I will be the God who delivers you from the house of bondage, from Egypt, if you can keep these Ten Commandments for 30 to 40 years. If you keep at least seven of them. If you keep seven of them, then what I'll do is I'll go ahead and I'll rescue you from Egypt. Israel would still be in Egypt, wouldn't they? They would never have been redeemed. But how do the Ten Commandments begin? I am the Lord your God who what brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so what do we do after the Lord has brought us out, after the Lord has redeemed us? What does he call us to do? Well, you shall have no other gods before me. And so on and so on and so on. We're called to obey. You see, this is the gospel order. The Lord redeems and then calls us to this life of obedient purpose. We get get a, a, a wonderful display of this in Romans chapter 12 when Paul just says it outright. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in order to get the mercies of God, you better live sacrificially for the Lord. No, no. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of Romans 1 to 11, the extraordinary, undisruptible grace that's there for you in Jesus, according to all of those mercies, Offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice. The totality of your life ought to be offered to Him because of all that He's done for you, you see. And so this, this just is so central to our understanding of what it means to do things. We love, why? Because He first loved us. That, that, that is the gospel. We engage in doing things. When we talk about our purpose, we're going to talk about a number of things. But all of this is not fundamentally grounded in the fact we hope God will love us. No, it is fundamentally grounded in the fact that He has extended love we don't deserve to us, a love that can never, we can never be separated from in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what do we do? Well, we live out that reality. That's what Paul says to the Philippians believers when he tells them, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's not saying to them, do well enough so you can earn the worthiness of the gospel. He's already told them, he who began a good work in you will complete it you you have been saved paul's very confident in their salvation and so what does he tell them to do live like safe people you've had this extraordinary grace from god in christ jesus now go and live like the gospel is your gospel right? and so we just have that in our minds Always, as we talk about engaging, whether it's, it's in, our, in, in, our, in our endeavors out in the world, whether it's in our ministry, uh, specifically as a local church, whether it's our individual lives, we are living out of the fact that we have been given eternal grace that can never be removed from us in the Lord Jesus. We do because of what has already been done and completed for us. So There's always clear on that. Clear on that. You can nod. We wouldn't want to say amen. That'd be too much, but we can nod. Good. Okay. So with that in mind, then we start thinking through a scriptural framework for our purpose, which, of course, the scriptures speak clearly to in different ways. Our purpose is a local church. Our purpose is individual members of it. How do we think about that? Well, one of the plainest ways to think about it is to think through these passages we've read from Ephesians this morning. Uh, Ephesians is a, is a letter that Paul wrote to the church about the church. Uh, Ephesians is a letter about the dividing walls being broken down between Jew and Gentile. The Lord is gathering people through what Jesus has accomplished into His universal family of all who will believe, all who have been saved. And as Paul speaks about the church, we have him beginning Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-14, to 14, which Jenny read for us for our call to worship, by speaking about salvation. So he begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world and so on. You have been saved. Chapter 1 of Ephesians is about salvation. And why have we been saved from chapter 1 of Ephesians? Well, we've been saved to the praise of his glorious grace. That's verse 6. To the praise of his glory. That's verse 12. And to the praise of his glory. That's verse 14. So Ephesians chapter 1 is all about salvation, and it's all about why we've been saved. We have been saved by God to the praise of His glory. Why do we exist? We exist to glorify God as saved people. We get into Ephesians chapter 2, and what is Ephesians chapter 2 all about? Well, actually, it's all about salvation also, isn't it? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, and on and on he goes. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead. Salvation, right? And so why did he do all of those things? Well, it's because we are his workmanship, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Ephesians chapter 1 is all about salvation. We have been saved to the praise of his glory. We've been saved to glorify God. Ephesians 2, all about salvation. Why Why have we been saved? to walk in the good works that He's prepared for us to walk in. You see these these two dimensions. There's a vertical dimension to our Christian purpose to glorify God in all that we do. And there is this horizontal dimension to our Christian purpose to walk in the good works that He's prepared for us to walk in. And as we think about our, our Bibles, we recognize that those good works basically divide into two categories, which is how we talk about it in our purpose statement. We exist for the good of God's people. We've been prepared for good works for one another in the church. And we have been prepared. Uh, those good works include living for Christ out in the world. So that's why when we talk about our purpose statement, we have those three parts. We exist for the glory of God. We exist for the good of God's people. And we exist for Christ in the world. Now, what we're going to do today is we're just going to talk about the first part of that. We exist for the glory of God. Um, and, we're, and we're going to unpack how that, how that can play out for us. And then next week, uh, we will, we'll take those other two. Because, again, I, I couldn't squish it all in, even, oh, I'll, I'm just, man, okay, struggling even today. We'll see how far we get. Is it really that? Wow. Okay, so, <clears throat> we exist for the glory of God. Yeah, that's right. You all help with chairs. We can, we can get out of here quick. It'll be all right. Uh, we exist for the glory of God is a very pious statement, isn't it? Doesn't that sound like a nice Christian thing to say? Why do you exist? Well, brother, just want you to know I exist for the glory of God. Well, right. But but we well, we do understand that that is a that is a a framework for living that has occupied uh, Christians' minds from the very beginning. We even have that in in old confessions of faith, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. First question is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, why do you exist? And the answer to that is we exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is, this is why we have been saved. Um, the question, of course, is, that sounds nice and pious. What does that really mean? How does that really play out in our lives? And, and so we can think about that, apparently, for about seven more minutes, but, but we'll, we'll try. Um, the, the word glory, and, and again, this is review for us, but the word glory comes from that Hebrew word kavod, which is just a general term for weight, uh, as, as it was used in the, in the early markets. Um, it was a word that reflected the weight of grain, for example. So if grain had a certain weight, it had a certain value. Right? So, so as the, the word kavod ended up being used throughout the Scriptures, it was used in a weighty way like, like Eli in 1 Samuel. When he falls over and breaks his neck and dies, it was because he was kavod, because he was heavy. Right? But at the same time then, kavod comes to be used to describe the weighty worth of, of, of many things, not least of all God himself. So we get into Psalm 19, and David, the psalmist, says, the heavens declare the kavod of God. In other words, if we're going to speak about some way of measuring the worth and worthiness of God, what do we have to do? Well, actually, what we have to do is begin to express how worthy that in a scale. That's, that's some way to begin to express how worthy God is. The heavens declare the glory of God. So, so glory in and of itself speaks to something in terms of its weighty worth. So so when we say that our purpose, why God made us and saved us, is to glorify Him, we're speaking to the fact that we exist both individually and as a local church to display and confess and promote God's weighty worth, His value. And how do we do that? Well, in in many different ways, uh, both individually and corporately. And we we can think about a number of these, so I'll just run through them here briefly. Uh, But we can think about this in terms of adoration. We glorify God. We display His weighty worth in our ador- as we express adoration for Him, um, which, is, which is how Jesus defines things when He's asked what the greatest commandment is, isn't it? What is the greatest commandment? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. So with the totality of your personhood, express affection, express adoration for the Lord um, Jesus speaks to Peter about this after after his resurrection, when he restores Peter, after Peter's denied him three times. What's Jesus' question for Peter three times? Do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? No. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? So for us... Uh, the, We do believe in the inheritance of Scripture, of course, right? But you see a priority here that, that is placed out in the scripture. So for us, individually and corporately, this has this has implications. When we think about the adoration of God, individually, this means that we live in ways that show our greatest affection is oriented toward God Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. So so we glorify God when things that are contrary to God's personhood and goodness are rejected and things that reflect God's personhood and creative goodness are embraced and celebrated. That's how we love God. With our minds and our thinking, with our bodies and our physical being, with our soul and the spiritual pursuits of our inner life, the affections of our personhood are oriented toward God and what He says is lovely, and as we orient ourselves toward Him in that way, what we're saying is He's lovely. That has implications for us personally and individually as a church. And that is, and that has, as that has implications for us uh, corporately as a church, we can think about that just in terms of our corporate worship on the Lord's Day and why it is so important. Of course, our corporate worship on the Lord's Day is important because we need the encouragement that comes from the saints and the scriptures and the sacraments. We need that just at a personal level. We need that. But, but it's not just that. Corporate worship is important to us because God loves it when His people gather to offer their praise, and loving Him means engaging in the things God loves. And then we get this in many places. Psalm 95, Psalm 96, we even saw this last week, in Jesus' zeal for pure temple work, for purified worship in the temple as he, as he did that. The Lord loves the gathered, pure worship of His people. In fact, one of the most graphic places where this is Uh, spoken about is in Psalm 87, where Psalm 87, verse 2, reads like this, The Lord loves Zion's city gates more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Strikes us as a strange sentiment at first. Except we, we must remember that Zion's city gates reflect the opening to the city of Jerusalem where the people of God would come in to celebrate festivals, the worship. All of those things would be done in the temple where the people from the outlying areas would come in through Zion's city gates to offer their worship. And what, what is the Lord saying? He's saying that is what brings me... Such great joy. I, I love that when my people are coming into my city to rejoice and to worship more than I love just all the little individual things going on out here in the, in the various homes in the outskirts of, of the land of Israel. There's a uniqueness to the gathered people of God worshiping that the Lord loves. And so, one of the ways we glorify God is in our adoration of Him, which means what He loves, what He says is lovely, we love. That displays the weighty worth of who God is. And so that affects how we think and how we act, how we pursue our individual spiritual lives, but that also really impacts our, even our realities on Sunday morning where we're here to, to sing and sit under His Word and consider the sacrifice of God the Son. All of that we gather to worship because we love what He loves, and in that we display His weighty worth. He's worthy of our affections. So we glorify God in our adoration of Him. We also glorify God in our satisfaction in Him, both individually and individually and corporately. So, individually, for example, uh, Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a psalm about uh, 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 a person who is deeply struggling because they're looking out at the world around them and they're asking the question, why am I bothering keeping myself pure? I look around at the world all around me and it seems like uh, the wicked, those who are so contrary to God, they're the ones who are flourishing. They're the ones who have all the stuff. They're the ones who have all the happiness. Nothing's bothering them at all. all. Everything is going really well for them, and I'm having all these troubles, so why would I bother keeping myself pure? Why am I bothering with this whole faithfulness thing? And then the psalm takes a turn, as he, sa- as he says, and then I entered the house of God, and then I discerned their end. In other words, he came into the place of worship where his attention was oriented vertically to the reality of who the living God is. And what does he say? Well, at that point he says, who have I in heaven but you? And apart from you, I desire nothing. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you're the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So he's completely reoriented. Whether I have much or whether I have little, I am totally satisfied knowing that I have the Lord Almighty. His love for me in Jesus Christ secures my well-being forever. That's why Paul says, what can anyone do to you? Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. And so, so the hymn writer, he can be very low and still be satisfied and write, Oh, the joy of having nothing. Ever said that? Who says that? Oh, the joy of having nothing, being nothing, seeing nothing, but a living Christ in glory. So, so we display God's weighty worth when we're satisfied in Him personally. Now, I'm not looking for alternatives to make me ultimately satisfied. At the end of the day, I'm a Heidelberg question number one person. Remember that old, old catechism? What is your only comfort in life and in death? Notice it doesn't say, what is... One of your favorite comforts in life and in death. It doesn't say that purposefully. What is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort in life and in death, the answer goes, is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him. Because I belong to Him, I'm assured of this eternal life. And so as we think about what satisfaction really means, we recognize that God is our comfort. He is our comfort and we display His glory as we rest in our eternal satisfaction in Him. The people of Hosea's day, they were condemned by God because they were chasing spiritual alternatives. Idols that promised to satisfy but couldn't satisfy. Rather than glorifying God, they were living in ways that are contrary to Him. So the Lord spoke through Hosea, and He said that, that, that Israel was acting like an unfaithful wife. They were looking for satisfaction in destructive and unrighteous places. Right? So as we think about that corporately, not just individually, but corporately. We glorify God as a corporate congregation of God's people when we say we are not looking for alternatives. We're not interested in the satisfaction that the world might promote, even in what we see is might uh, that, that might look so flourishing and, and wonderful and alluring around us. No, we're going to say we're not interested in spirituality or ideology or philosophy that's new and fancy and shiny and alluring, promising to give us all of these wonderful things. No, we don't look to those things. We are satisfied and that the weighty worth, the the great worth of the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God, full of wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God Almighty is enough for us. He's the planner, procurer, applier, and preserver of our eternal salvation. And so we look no further for satisfaction than the fullness of, of freedom and forgiveness that's there for us in Christ, revealed through His, revealed through his Word. We're satisfied in that. We're we are just very happy to say, my salvation, my eternal well-being, Comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the authority of the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. We glorify God in our satisfaction in Him. We'll just stop, we'll stop with this. We're going to have to keep going next week, but we'll, we'll stop with this for now. As we go out into our weeks, the reality that we can be completely satisfied in Christ, has to, has to be a dominating factor in our minds if we're going to live for His glory. So we go out into our weeks, and what are we saying? We're saying, for Monday we have Christ. Right? We need to be reminding ourselves of these things constantly. For sin we have Christ. That temptation that comes, crushes us, the guilt that can weigh upon us. No, for all of these things I have Christ, who's sufficient for me in this. For trials we have Christ. He will preserve me ultimately into glory. For confusion we have Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. I may not know it all, but I know that in Him I'm eternally reconciled to the God who made me. For sickness we have Christ. He's going to be the one who will one day restore me completely and not leave me wanting, but leave me whole and perfected for all eternity. For pain and emptiness we have Christ. For death we have Christ, because for life we have Christ. So where else would we go? We're just satisfied eternally in the supremacy and sufficiency of knowing the Lord Jesus. So in this, we declare there is nothing that is of greater kavod than God. We glorify God in our adoration of Him. We glorify God in our satisfaction in Him. We'll finish and then we'll talk a little more next week about our joyful obedience to Him and our dependence upon Him. And we'll try to smush the other stuff in there too. Okay, but we'll stop there for the day and we just reflect on this as a defining and constraining reality for our lives. Let's pray together. Uh, So Father, we ask that you would renew us in this truth this morning, that it would be life-giving for us. We uh, desire to live our lives in a way that shows there is no no one and no thing that is of of great value as you. Uh, Oftentimes, Lord, we find ourselves wandering away from that truth, uh, distracted from that truth. But would you Uh, refresh our minds with it today that there is there is no greater thing we can ever have uh, than a a knowledge of your kindness to us and who you are for us and so may we turn again to the significance of Christ and what he's accomplished and what it means that we are adopted into your family holy father and the ministry of the spirit that makes us alive together with Christ Uh, please make those things fresh in our minds and may we live in light of those in Jesus name amen